Well, let's remain standing as we read from James chapter 2, the first 13 verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy on the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. <clears throat> well, God creates unity in his church by making everyone different. And God makes everyone different for different reasons, at least as they are seen in the lives of people. And so therefore, we should never have a problem with partiality because we understand that some of those differences are God-given differences. And therefore, they ought to be praised and glorified in the light that God has created them. But here, James shows us that it is possible for us to be impressed <clears throat> in the wrong way with the wrong things. And when we are impressed in the wrong way with the wrong things, we end up showing and committing the sin of partiality. What James also does here is that he shows us that we cannot see everything that God sees. We cannot look into a person's heart. We cannot always know what they are thinking. We cannot see where their mind is at. And yet we make judgments all the time. And we make judgments with imperfect vision because we cannot see what God sees. And so when we come into a fellowship and we notice differences, we ought to be able to recognize that those differences have been created by God. But what we then shouldn't do is then change our behavior according to different people, depending on who they are. Some may be wealthy, some may be poor, some may be dressed well, some may be dressed not so well. I didn't want to say like me or someone else, but there is differences in <clears throat> how people dress. And some people who can actually afford to dress well don't. 
and some people who <clears throat> can't afford to dress well tend to have expensive tastes. So these are further differences. But this is not the point here. The point here is simply to address that in certain contexts, you can have people in your assembly. And why are people then impressed uh, in the wrong ways uh, and with the wrong things? This is James's point. Why are you impressed with one person over the other? Uh, and the root of that impression is that you are committing the sin of partiality. And so what I need to do this morning is I need to say less in order to say more. I need to say less in order to say more. And the reason being is because James breaks this section down into two halves, not equal halves, but um, they are two parts. And what he is doing is he is simply describing the same island from different points of view. It's the same subject. It is the sin of partiality. It's the same island. But you imagine everybody describing that island standing at a different place around it, and everyone is going to have a different perspective. So what James is doing here in this letter is he is taking the sin of partiality, then he is describing it from several angles. And the reason he does this is because we may be tempted to believe that if I'm not create, uh, committing the sin of partiality in this area, then I'm not committing the sin of partiality in any area. And James says, no, that's not the case. It is entirely possible for you not to be committing the sin of partiality in X, Y, and Z, but then entirely possible for you to be committing the sin of partiality elsewhere and not even know that you're doing it. One of the false distinctions that has to be addressed is that it is right to say that there is a separation between the state and the church. There is a clear separation between the state and the church. But there is not a separation between God's law. In other words, those in the church are to keep God's law, and those in the world are to keep God's law. God is God everywhere. He's not just God of the church. He's God of everything. And therefore, God's law and God's perfections are felt, even spelled out in creation, Psalm 19, and then spelled out in God's word, the rest of Psalm 19. And therefore, we understand that, yes, there is a separation between the state and the church, but there is that the division isn't that we should obey God in here but not out there. And therefore, is it possible that we don't commit the sin of partiality in here, but then we are caught up in a worldly system where the sin of partiality is just hidden over? Okay. This is one of the things that we have to address. So we will be tempted to believe that if we've, if we've not broken the sin of partiality in one area, that we're not guilty in other areas. And James says that is not uh, the case. So James sticks with the subject, and so this morning we will be saying less in order to say more. So here is the summary of the first 13 verses. Verses 1 through to 7. James shows us that it is not possible for us to hold our faith in Jesus Christ at the same time you're committing this particular sin. In other words, you cannot say that you are walking by faith and you cannot say that you're holding to the faith in Christ, the Lord of glory, at the same time you're committing the sin of partiality. And the example that he gives in verses 1 through to 7 is the example between a rich man entering your congregation and a poor man entering your congregation. Then in verses 8 through to 13, continuing 
with the subject of the sin of partiality, it's now in the context of loving your neighbor. But James seems to be placing loving your neighbor into a specific context, not a general context. In one sense, everyone is our neighbor. But James seems to be addressing the neighbor in a specific context given the first seven verses. And so while it's true that everyone is our neighbor, James is hitting on something particular here, especially with the illustration between the rich man and the poor man. And then he sort of concludes in verse 13 with the, with the reality that all of us should live in light of our own judgment. You should always live in the light of your own judgment. And so to make judgments ahead of time about other people is not only to get them wrong, but to make judgments about yourself as though I'm doing nothing wrong is to make judgments with imperfect observation. God is the only one who can see. And then James then qualifies that by saying the need for us to show mercy in light of judgment is important because the one who doesn't show mercy doesn't receive mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So that's it. First seven verses, the sin of partiality explained and applied. Uh, verses 8 through 13, the sin of partiality explained and applied. And the driving force here is don't commit the sin and live in light of the judgment of God. So here's the first observation. The observation is this. Don't be impressed in the wrong way and by the wrong things. God does make us all different. And therefore, there's no reason to be jealous of another person. It is tempted to be jealous of another person. Christopher Hitchens famously said that jealousy was the key motivator to, to make the world turn. That it's because of our jealousy of our neighbor that we try and outperform them. And then we're, we do more work, we create more things. That may be true, that may happen, it may be real, but it's not right. And so we must understand that there is a difference here, and these differences are seen in the sin of partiality. What James does then is that he shows us that we tend to commit this sin not with people that we are familiar with over a period of time, but often with new people. There's, there's something about new people that we perhaps uh, and, you know, endear ourselves to for multiple reasons. So this is what James does. James shows us that we can make, as people, ungodly distinctions from observing differences. It is true that people are different, and there's nothing wrong with differences. The trouble is then when we draw out of those differences distinctions by which we then make further judgments. I will be friends with this person because I might be able to get something out of them rather than this person who I might have to give something to. And so that is, we, we kind of do that all the time. And so the man wearing the gold ring is brand new to the church. And so too is the man who's wearing poor, poor shabby clothing. And the reason we know this is because they've come in, they don't know where to sit. So these aren't regular attenders in the church. These are people who have just turned up. And then all of a sudden, your behavior towards them changes based on their appearance. And so you say to the man who looks at night with his nice clothes that you ought to sit. You know, don't sit on the floor. Don't stand. Sit here. 
and then to the poor man in shabby clothing sit over there. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. In other words, if there is one seat left and the rich man walks in before the poor man, why not give him the seat? There's nothing wrong with that. The point here is, is that they both enter into the church and sort of movement is being made for one man but not the other. You're going out of your way to please one man rather than the other. So this isn't about rich and poor. This is about what you do when you observe differences in people. This is about you, not about them. This has got nothing to do with the rich man and the poor man, essentially. It's got about what you do with the differences you see in the people you meet. And so do you therefore then commit the sin of partiality, favoring one over the other in an ungodly way? And so though they have entered together, they are treated differently. And so what you see or what James is showing you is that the church ought to be the place where the moment you enter in through the front door, all those distinctions and divisions and levels of separation that exist in the world should no longer exist in the church. And so what James is showing us is exactly the same kind of divisions you have in the world you now have in the church. And you are creating those divisions by the sin of partiality. You have that out there, you should not have it in here. And the way you bring what's out there in here is by committing the same sin that they're committing out there, which is the sin of partiality. And so as these two men walk through the door, at that point in the church, they ought to be treated as equals. They ought to be seen as men created in the image of God. But instead, they are treated differently because of externalities, what they have come in looking like. And that sin of partiality is the thing that then begins to divide the church in different areas. It's the kind of judgment you find in the world, and therefore it should not be the kind of judgment you find in the church. So it's obvious that we can all spot differences. And I want to point out at this point, it's also important that we spot differences. It's important that we recognize that some people find some things harder than others. It's important that we recognize, especially when we have a growing fellowship and we have all this beautiful food provided every single week, that for some, it may be harder to produce a weekly offering than it is for others. These, we ought to be able to spot these things, but we should never treat that person differently than the person who's able to provide a feast every single week. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, Differences matter. Being able to spot those differences really matter. But it's the behavior that follows those differences. We should not treat people differently based on who they are by external realities. Now, Paul had to deal with this in Corinth, where that church became nothing more than a courtroom of human opinions. Now, I have been in enough churches, and I have been around enough Christians to have seen this in real terms, where the church can be nothing more than a courtroom of human opinions. What will this person think? What will that person think? So Paul's in a church and they're saying, I love Paul, I love Cephas, I love Apollos, I love this person and that person. What are they doing? They, they may be showing their preferences, but it's getting to the point where it's creating divisions. I love you more than somebody else. And so imagine living in an environment where it's nothing more than a courtroom of human opinion. And Paul has to say very clearly, listen, 
it is a very small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. Then he says, most importantly, I don't even judge myself because the judgment of God is not yet in. James, James 2.13. I'm going to live my life in the light of God's judgment. I don't care about what you think about me. More importantly, I don't even care what I think about myself. I only care what God thinks about me. I am only going to have my life shaped by the future judgment of God. And so we're not going to live in a courtroom of human opinions. We're not going to have that type of fellowship. Why? Because it is destructive and it is bringing the world into the church. And so the sin of partiality creates that environment. And that is the very thing that James is saying that we should not do. Why? Because the moment you have done that, you have become a judge with evil thoughts. You have taken on God's role thinking that you can uh, understand the distinctions and differences between people with perfect accuracy. And you can't. All you have is false distinctions. And therefore, you can no longer hold to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory in the right way. You're just not being faithful in the faith. And so the sin has to go. And so don't be impressed with the wrong people or the right people or any people in the wrong way or with the wrong things. Just don't be impressed. They're not better than you. They're not worse than you. They are people created in the image of God. And therefore, it becomes almost very easy not to commit this sin if you remember the fact that we're all made by God. If you, if you just get back to this very biblical and simple principle that... God has made you the way you are, and God has made me the way I am, and we both deal with sin, and therefore we're not perfect. And so now we begin to appreciate what we have. And so imagine if Jesus Christ walked into the fellowship, and you did not know it was Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine what the sin of partiality would look like then. We would be forgetting the Lord of glory because we've not even noticed the Lord of glory. And yet, what does Paul actually tell us about the Lord of glory? He says this, that though he was rich, rich, beyond any earthly riches, that though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Don't ever forget that you are saved by a homeless man. Foxes have owls, birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You are saved by a homeless man. Jesus, that's what Jesus came to be. We, we tend to forget that. But it's just, look at the Gospels. Look at the cost of discipleship. Every cost of discipleship is about leaving mother and father, home, relatives, security, leave your fishing nets. Let's go ahead and trust God. We tend to forget that Jesus was that person uh, fully God, truly God, truly man also. And so I think if we met Jesus, we would have treated him differently because we would not have observed the Lord of glory. And so the sin of partiality is to make judgments that separate people. It's okay to, make, to understand differences. It's okay to understand distinctives of different people, but what they should never lead to is separation. You should never be separated in the congregation. You should never be dividing people groups, 
people into different groups. You should never be doing that. And so that's what the sin of partiality seeks to do. And that's what James is telling us that we should not do. And then he goes on to say, aren't the rich those who have dishonored the poor? Aren't they the ones that drag you into court? And he's speaking generally. Not all rich people fall into this category, but generally it's true. And so we can almost dispense with the specifics and the technicalities and just say, well, generally it's true. It may not be true of all people, but it is generally true of all rich people. And so we commit the sin of partiality the moment we are impressed with the wrong things in the wrong way in the church or anywhere else. Rather, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But if you commit the sin of partiality, that's the one thing you can't do. You break one little bit of the law, you break it all. This is the point about murder and adultery. You break one and keep the other, it doesn't matter. You, you've broke the law. And so you commit the sin of partiality, even, the, even to the smallest degree, you've broken the whole law. Because the law reflects God and you are no longer reflecting God because you're not keeping his law. You're not keeping his word. This is how the sin is committed. So he moves on. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do this? What does it actually mean to love your neighbor? In, in one sense, everybody is your neighbor, but more importantly, you are the neighbor. This is Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You are the neighbor. It's one thing to love your neighbor. It is another thing to be the good neighbor. And so what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself in the context of the rich and the poor man? Well, the neighbor, according to Jesus, the good neighbor is the one who helps another person who is in need, the one who shows mercy, thus fulfilling the law, love your neighbor as yourself. As you seek to love another person and showing them mercy, you are recognizing that they don't have something they need and you will be the one who will provide it for them. You will be the good neighbor, and they are your neighbor, specifically speaking, because they are the one in need. It is true that everyone is your neighbor, but it is specifically true that someone in need is your specific neighbor. This is the point of the Good Samaritan. This person is in need, and therefore, what is it to be a good neighbor to them? It's to recognize their need and serve them. Now, it seems an obvious point to say that you cannot love your neighbor without loving your neighbor. But it's amazing how many people try. In other words, they try to love their neighbor without actually loving their neighbor. And as I pointed out before, to love someone properly takes a long time. It takes a long time to get it right. It takes a long time to do it properly. In other words, for me to truly love you is probably going to take a number of years to, to really be invested in you because I'm, I'm new here, I'm still getting to know you, and so I can't meet all your needs because I don't even know all of your needs yet, as far as I can meet them as a minister in Christ Jesus. It takes time to understand who my neighbors are. And so let's remember that the judgments on neighbors, the rich and the poor man that wander in, they're both our neighbors in one sense, that any, any uh, room out there for making distinctions and then causing separations um, in whatever sphere, social, economic, or whatever it may be, are no longer allowed to exist in the church 
where they influence your behavior towards one another. And so the defining mark of genuine love is that you don't allow the differences that you see between people to make you treat them differently. That's the defining mark of your faith in loving Christ Jesus, that you will not treat the person who is different than you and that person and that person differently. You will love them equally. Though their needs are different, you will love them the same. Here's an example of, of the problem you have with a sin of partiality being hidden in the world. And this is why I mentioned state and, and church at the beginning. So Lugino Bruni wrote a beautiful book called The Wound and the Blessing. Um, now, he is addressing in that book the thoughts of Thomas Hobbes, who wrote the book Le Leviathan. And he is also addressing um, the book by Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, which was, or is perhaps still considered one of the greatest books on economics. In fact, if you go to the birthplace of Adam Smith, which is a place called Kokodi, which was about 30 minutes from where I used to live, 40 minutes from where I used to live, it is a small town with almost no economic output, like none whatsoever. So that's the sort of background from which Adam Smith came from. But in that book, one of the things that they point out is this, that in the world you have a free market, that everyone is allowed to pursue their self-love. They love themselves, but do they love their neighbor, okay? They have self-interest, but do they love their neighbor? We're, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the world seems to have no problem in loving themselves and pursuing self-interest, very similar to what a very famous economist said in America, Milton Freeman, that the way the world works is in the free market is by each person seeking their own self-interest. In and of itself, that's not problematic. Seeking yourself in, in and of itself is not problematic. God gives private property. It gives you the ability to be productive, to go out and make things and be uh, capitalistic. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself other than the fact of what it ignores under the law of God. And what it ignores under the law of God is this, and this is his observation. This leads us to observe that market relationships in this fallen world allow us to satisfy our needs without having to depend on others' love. By all depending impersonally and anonymously on the invisible hand of the market. His point is this, not that there's anything wrong with, with, with capitalism, it's good. But notice what's missing. In other words, the world has no problem with self-love, but it has every problem in the world with loving your neighbor as yourself. It can't do that. It has no problem with pursuing its own self-interests, but it has a great deal of problem with pursuing the interests of their neighbor. What it wants to do is deal with the neighbor anonymously or impersonally through a market, through a system, through a benefit, through social security, through government programs. That's how it wants to deal with people. No, says James. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what makes the church different than the world. This is why, as we said previously, that we are to take particular care for widows and orphans. It's not the world's job to look after them, it's our job.
It's our responsibility to go out of our way and care for our neighbor in need, right? Because the neighbor here is the specific one, the one who is in need. And there's no probably greater need than a widow and an orphan. And therefore, so James is not bitty as you might have first thought. He is building and building on previous thoughts that he has addressed you to. And so being a good neighbor means that we cannot do this impersonally. And we cannot do this anonymously, where the sin of partiality is hidden. We must love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's the full force of that command. We are to do it in the world, of course, but we are to especially do it in the church, because God is everywhere. We obey God everywhere, not just in here. And therefore, since to love our neighbor is to meet their need, it is to show mercy. It is to give them something that they do not have. It is to cause, allow them, through your love for them, to get out of the situation that they find themselves in, a bit like the Good Samaritan, who helps and then goes back, not impersonally, not anonymously, but loving your neighbor as yourself, thus fulfilling the law of liberty. And the reason it's called the law of liberty is because you have been given the ability by the power and work of the Holy Spirit to be able to fulfill God's law. You're able to do this. You have the love for the other person to do it. You have the ability to do it. And so, where there is no love for neighbors, there is no mercy shown. And mercy triumphs over judgment. We are to live in the light of God's judgment. And so when a rich man walks into your congregation or a poor man walks into the congregation, partiality ends and mercy begins. Partiality ends and mercy begins. And this is nothing about the rich man being rich or the poor man being poor. It's about that some people have needs and some people don't to the same degree. And this is nothing about where they actually sit, other than the fact that if you prefer one over the other, then that's the sin. It's not about the rich man and the poor man. It's about your response to the differences that you see in the people you meet. So here's the exhortation as we close. The command is straightforward. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. And we cannot do this impersonally. We cannot do it anonymously, but we must do it as it is framed in scripture, in light of walking by faith, as we will be judged in the law of liberty, in light of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so what we recognize here this morning is that we are not only free to obey this command, but that we have been given the ability to be able to obey this command. And therefore, let us show no partiality, because if we do, we, can, we are no longer holding to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we recognize that there is a separation between church and state, and we are your witnesses here to show the world how it is done, to clearly point out to the world who you are and that your law is perfect and beautiful. And that, Father God, that while we are not saved by law, we recognize that it safeguards the value of being saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father God, for this challenge 
encouragement and conviction. And we pray that as a fellowship that we never commit the sin of partiality. In Jesus' name, amen.